Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Reno Whites. My name is Connor McWibby. I'm your host. Thanks for joining me. This week on the podcast, I am speaking with Denise Hund and Nikki Rubarth of the Alzheimer's Association. This episode is all about Alzheimer's disease, what it is, how it differs from dementia, what the risk factors are, warning signs, treatments. We talk about caregivers and the important role they play in taking care of Alzheimer's patients. A lot of really interesting stuff, and I was very grateful to be able to talk to them about this important issue. I definitely learned a lot and appreciate them taking the time to come on the show. This week's episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia Nevada. As you know, I host DJ Trivia at several local venues in town. I hope that you'll come play sometime. It's a lot of fun. I've been hosting at some of the same venues for years, and it's really fun to see these regular teams that come and play every week. I'm so grateful to all of our regular players And it's also super fun when we have new teams, new players who haven't played before. If you haven't played DJ Trivia before, it's really fun. There's music, there's prizes, there's venues all around town. So whatever part of town you live in, there's probably a game near you, Sunday through Thursday. So check out DJTriviaNevada.com for the full list of locations. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is my favorite local news source. Basically, for a city the size of Reno, we really need to have local news reporting talking about all of the issues that affect us directly. And that's what This Is Reno does. A lot of times I will find their reporting more detailed, more thorough, more nuanced than the local newspaper or the TV news. This Is Reno is doing a really great job of bringing the stories that really matter to the people of Reno. You can find them on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and at thisisreno.com. Renoites is about to celebrate our one-year anniversary. I've been doing this podcast for almost a year now. I'm really, really excited, and I'm throwing a little party next week to celebrate on Thursday, March 10th. I hope you'll join me at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility. That's down off West 4th Street by Patagonia and Mayberry Park. That's Thursday, March 10th from 5 to 7. There's a link to register on my social media. If you do that, we'll buy your first beer for you, thanks to DJ Trivia. And I hope to see you there. It'll be from 5 to 7, followed by a special night of trivia hosted by myself and DJ Trivia's own Vicky Moosney. It's going to be a ton of fun. That's March 10th at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility. Really looking forward to seeing a lot of listeners and former guests there. And now, this week's guests, Nikki Rubarth and Denise Hund. Denise Hund and Nikki Rubarth, welcome to Arena Whites. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm happy to have you. Thank you for having us. So we'll start with introducing yourself. So you both work for the Alzheimer's Association, and this episode is going to be all about Alzheimer's. But to start, I'd love to know kind of what brought you to the kind of work you're doing with the Alzheimer's Association. What's your story, your connection to Alzheimer's, and what do you do for the Alzheimer's Association? Well, thank you so much for inviting us, Connor. We're happy to be here. My name is Nikki Rubath. I'm the Regional Director for the Alzheimer's Association here in Northern Nevada, and I oversee our programs throughout the region. Uh, We provide services right up to the borders with Idaho, Utah, California, and we provide services to anyone who is impacted by Alzheimer's or dementia. I have been with the association for uh, going on seven years now. I actually joined originally in a fundraising position, and uh, I've been the regional director for about five years. My personal story is uh, I found the Alzheimer's Association actually with my husband when My father-in-law was in the later stages of Alzheimer's disease, and we knew that we needed to find longer-term care for him. We connected, and the Alzheimer's Association helped us, and the rest is history. 
Excellent. And what about you, Denise? What's your Alzheimer's story? What brought you to the work that you're doing? Well, Nikki and I started seven years ago at about the same time. I'm a family care associate, and I've been working in the aging field since right out of college with wonderful opportunities to really work in development and watching how programs grow and how the understanding of dementia-related issues and Alzheimer's have grown into really understanding the need for care and support, and that's part of my job. So it's a real passion of mine to be able to direct families towards education, support, how to ask the right questions and communicate with their medical team. And I think every day we find a new avenue to help others. And that's really my main goal. And later in life, I was actually sitting on the other side of the table because both of my parents in late life had a form of dementia. My father had vascular dementia. My mom had late stage Alzheimer's. So I was really able to kind of really convey that message. And when the opportunity to work for the Alzheimer's Association came on, I knew I just needed to, to join them. And it's been a great journey. I don't know that much about Alzheimer's. I, I know it's a memory loss, usually in later age and associated with dementia a lot. And my understanding is dementia is kind of the bigger umbrella and Alzheimer's is a specific disease. Can you just tell me a little bit about what the difference is? What is Alzheimer's versus dementia and what the, the focus of the Alzheimer's Association is in terms of awareness and things for Alzheimer's specifically? So dementia is the umbrella term for symptoms related to memory loss, thinking, and the ability to process information. So commonly that's the umbrella term to specifically what type of dementia might it be. Alzheimer's being the most prevalent by 60 or 70% of diagnosis. Others might be vascular dementia related to stroke, frontal temporal dementia, which has a tendency to be diagnosed at a younger population, maybe 30s, 40s, and 50s, and Lewy bodies. So the specifics of the dementia diagnosis are related to getting to the right medical team to navigate a diagnosis and to kind of move forward with what's going to happen next and how do we get to the right help. Mm -hmm. So does Alzheimer's have kind of specific treatments and ways of dealing with it that are different than those other forms of dementia? Alzheimer's mainly will present itself first with memory loss that seems very specific to short-term memory loss, perhaps, or uh, memory loss that disrupts daily life. On our website at alz.org, you can find a common script that we use and tell families to use if you see symptoms of concern, and that's called the 10 warning signs. So the next step to see, gosh, is it specifically Alzheimer's, would be get to the right medical team, navigate maybe through the general practitioner, eventually a neurologist and neuropsychologist. Tests are done, such as CAT scans and sometimes a PET scan and an MRI to determine closer to what is this diagnosis. Then the team will kind of help strategically plan what medications might be involved specifically to Alzheimer's versus another dimension, which might be different, like Parkinson's dementia type would be different medications. So really key is asking the right questions with your medical team. How prevalent is Alzheimer's? Is it something that is getting more prevalent over time? There's a lot of awareness about it. Everyone has heard of Alzheimer's. A lot of people are personally affected by it, know people who've had Alzheimer's or forms of dementia. Is it something that is more or less prevalent over time? Is it something that is a growing concern? Kind of what's been the trend around Alzheimer's and how much of a worry is it for the typical person? Well, currently there's 
an estimated 44,000 people living in Nevada alone with a diagnosis, likely more because there's others that just haven't been diagnosed, close to 6 million people in the United States alone. And it is growing. And we need to really look at the research projects that will help you know, determine a treatment that's viable for the future. We are an aging population, so we are at greater risk as we age. What are some of the early warning signs of Alzheimer's? I know that's one of the things you focus on is making sure that people are aware of what to look out for. So can you talk a little bit about early warning signs of Alzheimer's and how those differ from normal age-related forgetfulness? Like, What should we be looking for and what's the difference between serious and not serious? One concern is memory loss that disrupts daily life. We've all maybe forgotten a friend's name or a neighbor's name and we could recall it. Someone who's having early symptoms of concern may not be able to recall or may be repeating themselves a lot. I mentioned the template of 10 warning signs, which is on our website. That really kind of compares what's normal aging versus areas of concern. If someone is not able to process new information, not following through with daily tasks that are usually pretty easy for them, personality changes, maybe someone who used to keep a perfect house, it's looking like it's a little, something doesn't seem right. If something doesn't seem right, it probably isn't. So it's really to work on, I'm, we're going to make an appointment for this and take someone with you. So it's mostly about the disruption to their normal life. Like if you are a little forgetful and it doesn't affect your life, that's probably not an Alzheimer's related symptom. That's just forgetfulness. But when it comes to things that really impact the day to day, Sure. And if people have a handful of symptoms, they don't have to have all 10. But if it's a handful, not being able to retrace one step, losing things and not being able to retrace your steps, or maybe having difficulty driving, these are all issues of concern that aren't necessarily normal aging. And what does the progression generally look like? Is Alzheimer's is something that is sometimes a long-term slide, right? It's not that symptoms are right away and then they just get worse right away. Sometimes this happens over the course of many years. What's the general trajectory of those symptoms? What does that look like typically? Obviously, I'm sure it varies person to person, but is there a general kind of pace of the worsening of the symptoms? What does that look like? Usually every person that's living with a diagnosis is different. So it's really related to that person's diagnosis, and that's difficult sometimes to understand. Sometimes it can be fairly quick. Sometimes people have the same symptoms for a long time, particularly in the early stages, they may be able to function quite well, and we want to really convey the message of living well. Uh, sometimes it's a very long journey. It can be three years. We've known care partners that are 18, 20 years in and helping their loved ones. So it's very, very different for each person in how they experience the symptoms and how they progress. And I know that we've talked about it mostly affecting older people, but a lot of the information that I was reading is about earlier onset or younger onset Alzheimer's. Can you talk a little bit about when that becomes kind of a concern? I'm in my late 30s, so I always think of Alzheimer's as something that like, I wouldn't have to worry about for a really long time. But some of the stuff I was reading is that sometimes you see people with Alzheimer's symptoms my age in their late 30s. So can you talk a little bit about the, the effect that Alzheimer's has on young people? We'll talk about caregiving too, because that's a huge part of the effect on young people, even if they don't have Alzheimer's, maybe they're a caregiver and it's going to affect their life. But as far as early onset Alzheimer's itself, is that something that is a big concern for the Alzheimer's Association, something that you see a lot of? And how does that differ in terms of recognizing it or identifying it or diagnosing it when you're talking about younger people? 
we consider young onset under the age of 65 and approximately 11% or so of the true diagnosis are people that are under the age of 65. We've had families as young as in their late 20s with a clear diagnosis. It could be Alzheimer's, it could be frontal temporal dementia, which is one that affects people younger and the symptoms are different. Certainly the stage of your life that you're in is much different than if you are a senior. So if you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, addressing those issues of really clarifying the diagnosis can sometimes be difficult. Mm -hmm. And of course, it disrupts if you're at 30, 40 or 50, you're likely still in your primary working years and you're raising your family. So the dynamics of the need for care and support is very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask about how you address Alzheimer's because there is no cure for Alzheimer's. There are some treatments I understand that may not necessarily slow down the effect to the brain itself, but help with the symptoms or help people to have the ability to live more normally, even if they're still suffering from the physical issues of Alzheimer's. So what does Alzheimer's care look like? Alzheimer's care, I'm guessing, is largely about being able to still live a good quality of life. So is it more about helping with the day-to-day tasks? Is it about helping people to still have quality of life, even though you're not able to address a lot of the memory issues? What What does Alzheimer's care entail? for caregivers and for medical professionals? Yeah, that's a great question. The treatments currently are, as you said, around symptom relief. So maybe helping people with symptoms such as agitation, helping them just to be a little bit more relaxed so they can live better with the diagnosis. And then the role of caregivers, of course, as you also mentioned, is significant. If you are caring for a family member early on in the diagnosis, then you can understand what your loved one's needs are. They can express those to you. They can still feed and clothe themselves. They can still bathe themselves. But as the disease progresses and those things become more difficult for them to do for themselves, then the challenges arise around communicating about those things and making sure that uh, the whole situation remains manageable for everyone. So one of the reasons why we encourage people to seek a diagnosis is so they can put plans in place around their care, their care needs, their legal and financial needs, and so forth. So the whole care process can be a little bit smoother and families can work together to keep their loved one at home, help them maintain their independence, preserve their autonomy and all of those things. So it's a complicated process and one that we we do seek caregivers to help to understand. Mm -hmm. Is there adequate care in the world of care facilities for elder care? I know that's always a concern is, are there enough facilities and staff for people who are aging, especially around Alzheimer's? Because it takes a lot more work, a lot more people, a lot more energy, obviously, to care for people who are suffering from Alzheimer's. Is that, do you think, sufficient? Do we have enough people that are in that field? What does that look like as far as not the personal caregiving, but maybe the caregiving industry, I guess? Does that meet the needs of Alzheimer's patients, do you think? And what does that, what does that look like for people who have to live in you know, an inpatient kind of facility when the symptoms are too bad for family to take care? Right. Well, we know that we live in a community or in a, in a region where there is a shortage of healthcare providers to begin with. So that's already a challenge. Uh, there are some wonderful long-term care communities here in Reno, in Northern Nevada, uh, staffed by dedicated professionals who really have their heart in their work. But of course, 
the challenges that have arisen during the pandemic have been significant and ongoing. It's been difficult, of course, for many organizations to hire staff, to train them, to keep them, and to, to fight the effects of COVID and how that has impacted those communities. The other thing is, of course, is that care is expensive. And for many families, it's prohibitively expensive. So knowing that you can place your loved one somewhere where they are well cared for, they're safe, they're well fed, they have activities to keep them interested is wonderful, but uh, it, it also, it costs money. So that's a challenge for a lot of families. Yeah. I understand that a lot of times it is family members that are doing the caregiving up until the point when they can no longer. Can you talk a little bit about how that affects families as far as having to do the double work of often it's people with kids who are in the middle of their careers having to take care of an aging parent who has Alzheimer's? What is that like for those families, the additional stress of having to be kind of a medical caretaker or kind of walk that line between taking care of someone's medical needs while also taking care of your family? Is that something that's a big problem, particularly for Alzheimer's? because it often falls on families to take care of their elderly loved ones? Yeah, it, it can be a real challenge for families. And studies do show that caregivers of family members with Alzheimer's disease do provide a higher level of care and more hours of care than those who are caregiving for people with, uh, with other diseases. So as you mentioned, families, we often refer to Alzheimer's being a disease of families because it does impact an entire family. Those sandwich care giving generations you mentioned who are caring for kids and for aging parents, you know, they are, they're squashed, they're challenged by all of the demands on their time and their resources. So one of the things that we try to do is helping pay for respite care. So a caregiver who's caring for someone and needs to care for them 24 seven can get some relief from that, can get some time to do other things, to go to work, to pursue their own activities and be with other family members and so forth. And that's really important. And we also encourage caregivers to reach out to us and attend our education programs and come to support groups so they can seek help from other people who are in similar situations and they can kind of share their responsibilities with others. Yeah, it sounds like a big part of what the Alzheimer's Association does is not just support for people with Alzheimer's, but for the caregivers, like taking care of the people who take care of the people with Alzheimer's, right? So I think that seems like a big part of the focus. Is that really a big priority for the Alzheimer's Association, not just to focus on the treatment and the medical side and the research, which are all very important, of course, but also supporting kind of that whole ecosystem of support for people who are suffering from Alzheimer's? Absolutely. Uh, everything that the Alzheimer's Association provides is at no cost. And we believe that education is key. So we have active education programs held virtually for now. We have programs on our website at alze.org under our training program with lots of resources and information and referrals to local resources, as well as a very active 24-7 helpline number at 800-272-3900. People can call at any time for even the person that's living with a diagnosis, the person who's the care partner. Sometimes people that are working in the field, they can call that number, get help and support from a clinical social worker. I think one of our goals is to never hear again a care partner say, I, I wish I would have heard about you years ago, or I wish I would have reached out and asked for help years ago. Because ultimately, if you don't ask for help and you don't seek respite, 
we tell the prime, if you're the primary care partner, what happens if something happens to you? No one can do this 24-7. So there are options out there, and the, and the Alzheimer's Association can certainly help navigate resources and access to services. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned support groups, too, which I imagine is a pretty important part of building that community. Is the goal of the support groups largely to share information and ideas and learn more for all of the people that are participating, or is it largely to give people a sense of community and understanding that they're not alone in this kind of thing? Or is it also just kind of to help with the mental health? Caregiving is, I'm sure, very, very stressful, creates a lot of anxiety, and having maybe a place to talk about that and share about it. Can you just talk a little bit about support groups in general, about the the purpose of them and how they really help these caregivers and people who are suffering from Alzheimer's? Support groups, we've heard so many times, Connor, are a lifeline. And it's peer support. It's friendship. It's you're not alone. It's sharing ideas. It's giving avenue to access to resources that they've used, ideas that have worked. The Alzheimer's Association was great about transitioning everything to virtual really quickly during the pandemic. So that bonding continued for support groups. And when we talk to our support group facilitators or who are also a lifeline for us at the Alzheimer's Association for their help and support, they're talking about how much the need happened through the the pandemic to, to continue with the support groups and how much that was such a lifeline for so many people. Excellent. One of the other things I was reading, I was looking through some of the materials on the ALZ.org website, and it talked a little bit about stigma. There was an article about Tony Bennett, how he has been making Alzheimer's more visible, and it talked about kind of bringing this forward so people are more aware of it. And when I think of stigmatized illnesses, I generally don't think of Alzheimer's right away. I think of things that people see as like preventable. Like if someone is a smoker and they get lung cancer, like that is a stigmatized kind of illness or like communicable diseases that people get that is stigmatized. I never think of Alzheimer's as being something that's stigmatized, but I wonder what does prevent people from seeking help for it? Is there a stigma around it? Is it something that people worry about? What are kind of the concerns of people that keep them away from seeking treatment or diagnosis around Alzheimer's? I would say that uh, I, I do believe there is a stigma around Alzheimer's disease, and I think it's traditionally, typically, has been a diagnosis that many people have been reluctant to disclose. Acknowledging that there's something wrong with your brain and how that impacts every aspect of your life, even to yourself, is very challenging before you even talk about it in families. When you think about our professions, our careers, all of the things that we, we, we love to do, we do those because, of, because our minds are active and because our brains make it possible for us to do that. So it's very challenging to be able to talk about it openly. And you never know how somebody is going to react. Some of the language that we've typically used around Alzheimer's about people being senile and uh, those kinds of words. Mm-hmm. We understand Alzheimer's much better now. We understand that it is a disease of the brain. It's not a mental health issue or a mental illness in the way that we maybe thought it was some time ago. And when we look back, many of us, I think, recognize grandparents, great-grandparents who may have had dementia or Alzheimer's, and we realize it wasn't diagnosed that 
you know, just a few decades ago. But there has been an awful lot of work around raising awareness of the importance of a diagnosis so people can put those care plans in place so they can get help with legal planning and so so they can even enroll in clinical trials where they exist. And there also has been a lot of attention paid as a result of people like Tony Bennett speaking up and talking about their experience. In addition, Alzheimer's is a bipartisan issue. Everyone knows someone who has been impacted by Alzheimer's. So the fact that there has been so much, uh, such an increase in funding in research for Alzheimer's disease, I think is evidence of the fact that people really do understand now that it's something that we need to pay closer attention to and, and we talk about. Let's talk a little bit about prevention and treatment. As far as prevention of Alzheimer's, what are the things that people can do? I know there's the the physical things and the mental things are my general understanding. So things like eating healthy, exercise, making like your heart and your brain are very closely related. So heart health probably equals brain health in a lot of ways. But then there's also kind of the cognitive stuff of making sure that you are using your brain and continuing to build up your neurons, however that works. Can you talk a little bit about both sides of the preventing Alzheimer's, what we can be doing to keep our brains healthy? We talk a lot, uh, Connor, about reducing risk factors, not necessarily prevention, but reducing risk factors. And for people that are interested in studies, there's the Sprint Mind study and the Pointer study, which both are evidence-based. The Alzheimer's Association loves the evidence-based programs to say, can we structure our lifestyle to reduce our risk? And the evidence to that is yes, and you're right staying active, physically active, proper exercise every day, finding a way to keep proper nutrition and hydration in our lives by choosing a diet that works for you, but that's healthy, uh, staying active cognitively, you know, challenging your brain, remaining active socially. And we did it a little bit differently these last four years, but most of the families we've talked to said, the, the funnest thing for us was to have a Zoom meeting with the grandkids and something to look forward to, a new thing to learn, too. So and combining those four things, you know, the active exercise, proper nutrition, hydration is important, keeping your brain healthy through challenging it every day and social keeping social activity in your life reduces risk. And that's evidence based. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenging brain things are good for you in general. I'm sure there are some things that work more than others. I know there was a trend, not as much now, but a few years ago of all these like brain training apps and games to try to, you know, stimulate your brain and and keep you sharp. Do those things have any kind of shown effect on preventing Alzheimer's or is it more things like just being social and having regular conversations? What's the value of a brain training app versus a crossword versus learning a new language like that's a whole spectrum of ease to difficult and uses your brain in different ways is there real value in some of the smaller daily things or is it really about pushing yourself and really making sure that your brain's working hard the evidence seems to show that it's about doing and learning new things creating new pathways in your brain so you can do a crossword every day That may have some effect, but if you learn a foreign language, as you suggested, something brand new, then that's likely to have much more of an impact. Yes. So I like to think when I try Wordle every morning that I'm doing something to help protect my brain, but I'm not so (laughs) sure. But yes, new things, learning new things. Gotcha. 
One of the things that I know has been I've heard of is also musical instruments, things like that. And we talked about Tony Bennett, too. So that kind of using your your brain and your body and kind of building those physical connections and that muscle memory and those kind of things. Is that also a part of it of doing tasks that are both cognitive and physical? Does that seem to have a stronger effect than just one or the other? Is, is that important to do those kind of tasks that use all parts of your body, both physical and mental? Definitely a combination of things. And you, you mentioned music and uh, there have been a number of documentaries and studies that have shown the impact of music and how memories of music and muscle memory as well. Um, if you saw the Tony Bennett documentary and you saw how he had struggled to recognize people and to speak, but then he could sing songs that he had known for decades and he almost transformed into a different person. So music is very powerful in how it impacts the brain and the memories there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with treatment, I know that there's a current drug or treatment that just came on the market that I wanted to ask you about. And I was just reading some news about this today too, that was approved by my understanding. It was approved by the FDA, but then only given approval to use in clinical studies for certain people. So it was limited in its availability. And it's also really, really expensive, right? So can you talk a little bit about what's on the horizon as far as these breakthrough treatments that may look a little bit more like a cure or may actually slow down the deterioration. What does that look like right now? What do you hope to see from that part of the, the treatment world in the future? Yeah, it's exciting that just last year in the last eight or nine months, we heard about something that really was for the first time a treatment. And as you said, it, uh, it was approved by the FDA and uh, has been reviewed by Medicare and CMS. And currently the approval is for people who are enrolled in clinical trials. We know it's not easy for everyone to access a clinical trial, and we know that not everyone will qualify for a clinical trial. But this drug is an infusion drug, which accounts for some of the, the high cost. So it's something that uh, it's not just in oral pill form. It's not something you can take once a day. It's kind of more complex than that. But this is also the first of a number of drugs that we understand are in the pipeline, which are monoclonal antibody inhibitors, which are, we are hoping, uh, will show that they actually can clear some of the plaques that we suspect are responsible for for cognitive decline. So it's very promising. It's very exciting. Uh, what we at the Alzheimer's Association are hoping for is that anyone who needs it will have access to it. So much of our work is really around that. Yeah, it's a new day, certainly in the era of, of Alzheimer's treatments. That's exciting. Are there concerns about side effects? One of the things I was reading is that the efficacy versus the side effects is sometimes a debate for families to have about the risks of this treatment versus the positive effects of it. What's your understanding of how effective it is versus the side effects and how families make that decision? What goes into being informed about what they want to do, especially considering the cost. Right. And of course, that's just one of the a typical situation where we really encourage people to, to seek knowledge, to inform themselves, to gather information, and to have that conversation with their medical team, not maybe not just with one physician, but with their medical team. We know, we often say, one, you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person with Alzheimer's. So everyone's situation is very different, but we certainly encourage people to find out more and then to discuss that with their care providers. Mm-hmm. 
And then we talked a little bit earlier about the racial disparity, because there's some racial disparities in the prevalence of Alzheimer's among, you know, people of color versus white people. Part of that might be related to just generally across our healthcare system, there are disparities. Do you think that there's anything in Alzheimer's specifically that creates this greater disparity? Or do you think it's just a reflection of our current healthcare systems and, you know, bigger systemic health issues. Can you just talk a little bit about the the racial elements of Alzheimer's diagnosis and treatment? Sure. And some of this, Connor, you, you're right, is access to services because some of the underserved communities don't have the medical providers or the intent to ask for help. That might be part of it. There are clinical studies, for instance, the African-American community may not have the same genetic link that we sometimes look at for greater risk factors. So some of this is really part of the studies is we're trying to find out more. We're trying to be inclusive with all communities to ask for help, to seek help and resources, to help families know that they can ask for help and to help trust the medical community. Some of that is really kind of subject to, you know, where do we reach out to make sure that these communities know that we want them to have the help and support that they need and the access to resources. Mm-hmm. Is part of the Alzheimer's Association's attention to that by focusing on those communities, or is the goal just to increase treatment for everyone and hope that that kind of like lifts all boats? What does the Alzheimer's Association do particularly around these disparities? Yeah, we certainly focus on underrepresented communities, minority communities, and we want to make sure that access exists wherever the needs are. There is some legislation that we're supporting at the moment, the ENACT Act, which is about encouraging the active participation of minority communities in clinical trials, because we know that one size doesn't fit all, and we want to make sure that all communities are represented so we can make sure that we're providing the best services to them. And where disparities exist, where access to healthcare is challenging, where there are economic factors that may prohibit people from accessing services, then we want to help to overcome those. So a lot of our work is around raising awareness of Alzheimer's disease so we can have those conversations and engage the people who can make a difference. How does the Alzheimer's Association spread the word? So I know that you have a a run that's an annual fundraiser. Yeah, I've heard of the Alzheimer's Association before. So you're doing a good job of letting people know that you exist. So that's good. What are the kind of strategies that you have to increase that awareness or to get people involved or to get people aware? As far as the communication piece, what is the strategy or the idea around the Alzheimer's Association? How does that work? Well, I'm very glad that you have heard of us before, so we must be doing something right. We try to get the word out as much as we can, of course. We have an annual fundraising event, the Walk to End Alzheimer's, that takes place in the fall. This year, it's October 8th, Saturday, October 8th at Sparks Marina, and we invite everyone to join us. Uh, It's a, a, a festive kind of a day, and we have supporters, sponsors, participants, volunteers, and we come out and honor caregivers for the work that they are doing right now. We remember those we've lost to the disease and we raise funds to invest in programs locally and at the national level as well. We also rely on a network of volunteers to talk about our programs. So 
We have volunteers who facilitate our support groups, who deliver our education programs, but we also have other volunteers who do community outreach for us. We have a number of student groups. We have a group of high school students who work with us. So we want to be able to spread those messages of loving your brain, taking care of your brain, and what to do if you need help or you have questions. So if you see anything purple and you see our promised flowers, which are kind of the signature of our, our walk to end Alzheimer's, then uh, that's all connected to us. So we're glad to get that information out there. Excellent. And then what about locally? So you're part of the Alzheimer's Association of Northern California, Northern Nevada, right? So can you talk a little bit about what happens specifically regionally or for this area, your relationships with maybe care providers in Northern Nevada, basically how, how strong or effective do you think that Alzheimer's association is uh, here in the Reno area? What I would say about um, our region and specifically about Reno and, and about the state is that we collaborate and partner with many other community organizations and agencies. We are very grateful and fortunate to receive funding from Nevada Aging and Disability Services to run and operate some of our programs. And we collaborate alongside, for example, the Sanford Center for Aging, um, Dementia Friendly Nevada. We work with representatives on the Task Force for Alzheimer's Disease. We work with the Nevada Respite Coalition, with the Commission on Aging to name just a few. And we work with all of the organizations who sponsor and support our fundraising events. So I think that's one of the great things about this community that, you know, we all work together for the well-being of our community. We want to take care of one another and we know that we can be more effective in the pursuit of those goals if we do it together. So um, yeah, we collaborate. Excellent. And then what would you like for people to advocate more for? What do you need more of? Is part of the solution for Alzheimer's? Is it funding for treatments? Is it more research? Like, what do you wish you had more of? If you could, you know, if you had the unlimited resources, what do you need? Do you need more volunteers? Do you need more money? Do you need more treatments? Is it more scientists? Is it, do you need politicians who are advocating for certain legal things that are affecting the work that you do? What's your wish list for being more effective? Yes, please. We'd love all of those, all of the above. Um, <laughs> uh, we do have, we have an active advocacy team. We advocate on the state level and on the federal level. So locally or statewide, we have a number of priorities for the Nevada legislature this year, including expanding access to an early diagnosis. We are also wanting to encourage the implementation of a dementia care specialist program, which means that there'll be someone who'll be available to actually navigate people through the Alzheimer's process, you know, from diagnosis right through to finding care and all of those other things. And then we're asking for improvements to family caregiver supports through Medicaid. So there's a lot that we know we can do locally to support people living with Alzheimer's, people who think they might have some kind of an issue with dementia, and those who are caregiving. And then on the federal level, on the congressional level, we are always asking for increases in funding. And we've been extremely fortunate in the last decade or so that there have been significant increases in funding. And those have been able to drive some of the projects that we know are in the pipeline and we've seen over the last few years. And if anyone would like to join us as an advocate, as a volunteer advocate, we know that legislators want to hear from people who are really 
living those those stories who want to they want to know what it's like to be a caregiver what it's like to get an alzheimer's diagnosis and how they can help so we know that makes a big difference so we love advocates volunteers for all of our programs we rely on volunteers we couldn't do the work that we do without the the goodwill of volunteers who help to run all of our programs not just our fundraising but obviously facilitating support groups, providing education, and all of those things. And donations, we rely on donations, of course, and we we're fortunate to receive gifts from many different sources, and we are good stewards of the funds that we receive, and we're always happy to talk to people about how those funds are spent and how they can support our work. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about Alzheimer's or the Alzheimer's Association? Certainly that we're here for your support. If you're living with the diagnosis, you can reach out to us through our helpline number or through our website. If you are a care partner, please reach out and ask for help. Seek respite. If someone asks you if they can help, say yes. If you know of someone who might be a care partner, offer to help or come up with your own task. Many people will say it's so hard to ask. But maybe if you show up at their door and say, go for a walk, I'm going to come in and have lunch with your mom. It can be really, really simple. And it takes makes such a big difference on the stress of our care partners. Our education programs are, are broad and helpful for all of us to know about. And just really let people know that we're here and ask for that support and make sure that you're you're getting it. And, and we want to be here for everyone that's affected by this diagnosis. And how can people get involved? How can people find you? I know there's there's the website. What about locally? Are there ways for people to get in touch if they want to help on the local level? How can people get involved? Our website, alz.org, is the place to start. And they can find our chapter and they can find links to volunteer opportunities. They can sign up for the walk, the Walk to End Alzheimer's. To find the walk, it's alz.org slash walk. So alz.org slash walk, and you can find our local walk um, via that link. The longest day is something that's very important to us at the Alzheimer's Association because it's the day that we set aside to honor caregivers. We say the day with the most light is the day we fight. And we know that caregiving can mean a long day. It can be a very long day when you're caring for someone who doesn't sleep very well, who doesn't want to eat, who may not want to take a shower, who cannot be left alone. All of your resources can be dedicated to caring for that one person. So we really want to make sure that at least on that one day, we're recognizing people who are providing that care. We encourage people to do something they love to honor those they love. So it's a fundraising event and people do all kinds of different things from organizing a bake sale or a lemonade stand to maybe a bike ride or a 5K or a tennis match or climbing a mountain. There are all kinds of different things that people can do to raise funds, but really importantly, to raise awareness. So by engaging people in your circle, your family and friends in uh, in a fundraising event, then it helps to normalize the conversation around Alzheimer's and to raise awareness of, uh, of what matters. And uh, they can reach us by phone through the helpline 800-272-3900. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. It's really great to talk to both of you about Alzheimer's, which I knew very, very little about. So one of the things I hope to do with this show generally is to have a variety of topics 
often about stuff that I don't know anything about. And a lot of people don't know the details. Everyone has heard of Alzheimer's, but a lot of people don't know about the work that you're doing, especially of the stuff around caregivers. We always forget about the people who are taking care of people suffering from Alzheimer's. And it's good to hear that there's such a focus at the Alzheimer's Association for the caregivers, the people that are doing that work day in and day out. So I really appreciate you both coming on to talk about it and kind of let us know the work you're doing and let people get more involved. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to Nikki and Denise for coming on the show. I really appreciate them taking the time. And I learned a ton about Alzheimer's. One of the things I really appreciate about this show is the opportunity to learn a lot and hopefully share that learning with the folks of Reno. If you have any ideas for guests, any suggestions for episodes, please let me know. There's a few episodes left in this season, and I'm going to be taking a short break for a few weeks and then coming back with season three sometime in the spring. I would love to know who you want to hear on that upcoming season. What type of topics would you like this show to cover? I really appreciate listener feedback, so feel free to send me an email. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. Or you can send me a message on social media, Instagram, Facebook, however, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode or any others, please do me a favor and let people know about the podcast. I know I say this every week, but it is very hard to let people know about a project like this. There's tens of thousands of podcast listeners in Reno who have no idea that this show even exists. I met a local reporter the other day who's, you know, working in the local media field And they told me, oh, I hadn't heard of your podcast until just recently. And I'm like, oh, man, I've been doing it for a year. So you can help. Let people know that this podcast exists. If you have any friends or family who listen to podcasts, even if they don't listen to podcasts, let them know, hey, there's this cool local show. They talk to a lot of interesting people. Maybe you should check it out. Share the link. Share the posts on social media. Anything really helps. And I very much appreciate your efforts in making this show as sustainable as possible. The more people listen, the more I can do. Thank you so much. Hopefully see some of you at the anniversary party next week and tune in for my next episode next Tuesday. (laughs) 